welcome to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by John Collins, the CFO of LivePerson. John, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. So I'm particularly excited to speak today because I believe that John truly represents what a modern CFO faces in terms of every challenge that could possibly be thrown in this current environment and has the background that every CFO should be considering and maybe every CEO should be looking for heading into 2021. So John, I'd love to take a few minutes and run through your personal background, how you got to LivePerson and really discussing how the landscape has changed and how the role is developing and kind of how you fit that bill so specifically today. Sure. Yeah, sounds good. I'll spend maybe just a few moments on my sort of experience, my professional experience, personal interests, and then get into how I got to start at LivePerson and transition into the CFO role. I'm really a mix of entrepreneur, finance professional, and data scientist by training and by experience. I started my career at the New York Stock Exchange, where I led a team that built all of the exchange's automated surveillance systems to detect manipulative and anomalous trading activity among the exchange's terabytes of incoming order flow. I also led teams tasked with investigating that activity, conducting compliance exams, coordinating with the SEC on enforcement matters, and lots of related work. After the NYSC, I spent two years in grad school at MIT. My experience at the NYSC got me interested in the buy side, and I turned that interest into really a project that took a couple of years to develop, but became a fully automated trading platform that I wrote from scratch that made investments for me while I was in class. I had some luck in that endeavor. And that experience transitioned into uh, a role as a portfolio manager for a fund with over 10 billion in the UN, where I ran fully systematic data-driven investment strategies for a number of years. I also co-founded a company that's in the space. Uh, it provides data and insights as a service to finance and commercial real estate firms. And, and those insights are really derived primarily from so-called alternative data, meaning alternative to financial reference data you might find in a Bloomberg terminal. And some examples of that are mobile phone location data, credit card transaction data, web script data, et cetera. And that information is intended to provide kind of independent or orthogonal data points to help reinforce an investment thesis or strategic decision-making that, let's say, a commercial real estate firm needs to make with respect to where it puts its next location or what kind of tenants it negotiates with to um, add to the premise. I met Rob by chance, actually, Rob, the CEO of LivePerson, when a recruiter with Creative Pitch Pingman. He pitched me the data that LivePerson generates and not so much the role. And I took the meeting because I thought LivePerson's data looked interesting from an investment perspective, you know, for financial applications. My views changed a bit, though, after I met Rob. He gave me his vision for LivePerson and how the company's innovations are changing the way that we communicate and do business. And the value proposition really resonated with me on a deep and personal and professional level. I mean, who hasn't experienced frustration waiting on hold or, or dialing 1-800 numbers to get some desire, some intent, some need resolved with a brand. So being able to send a message and then go about your day and feel confident that your need would be taken care of without putting you on the brand or the agent schedule is super compelling. And then leveling that up into what we call conversational AI and specifically conversational commerce was a really compelling vision that I was pretty sold on from the beginning. So I joined Rob to help transform that into a reality. And the initial role that I took on at LivePerson was not the CFO role. I came on as head of quantitative strategy. And unpacking that a bit, the aim was really to bring more data to the decision-making process. They distinguish data from information. Data 
needs to be transformed in some way. It needs to be normalized. It needs to be cleaned uh, in order to produce some kind of useful information for decision-making purposes. And so many companies have a lot of data, but they have trouble accessing it. They have trouble reconciling it. It's not clean. It's not reliable. I call these data constraints. And so there are many constraints you need to overcome in order to leverage data effectively. And I've you know, lived and breathed this for decades at the NYC and in, on the buy side, using alternative strategies for investment purposes. And so I thought that I could pretty rapidly apply that experience, that knowledge to live person's internal operations in order to transform them in a way that leadership can rely on for reducing uncertainty and revealing opportunity for strategic decision-making. And in the very early days, we were very successful in simply automating workflows and connecting systems together so that Salesforce, for example, can talk to the billing system and we know in real time how sales is lining up for the quarter, for example. And we can adjust planning in more or less real time as well as we connect more of these systems to the finance organization. And stitching all of that together allowed us to generate some pretty compelling insights for making decisions we might not have otherwise made. And that rapid success led to Rob and leadership team to believe that I would be a perfect fit for their view of what a CFO should be. That's incredible. So obviously the role can be daunting to many, but you had a background that you understood market infrastructure very well. So becoming a CFO in general is a very difficult task and an amazing accomplishment, but uh, you're now the CFO of a public company but you started with a very, very intimate understanding of not just the market, but the rules of the game. And you've now risen to this. So how exactly did that conversation go? Did Rob come to you and say, well, it's clear that you're making really great decisions and you can clearly communicate across all of these different teams? Or was it a mix of being able to communicate effectively with different teams and also have that, you know, that clean data-driven approach that you just discussed? You know, I think it's a mix of many factors, certainly those you just mentioned. I would also credit Rob, though, in his sort of vision. He's the essence of the entrepreneur who has a big vision and is not afraid to go after it. He's not afraid of change. He's not afraid of taking big risks. And let's, I think let's, that, step, let's step back for a second for the people who don't know about what conversational AI really means. So what excited you about that vision and encouraged you to step into that role as CFO, becoming part of the leadership, and maybe give a little bit more background on really how a live person interacts with the consumer? Maybe consumers don't even know that a live person is behind a lot of the brands that they know and love and communicate with regularly. That's likely true. Let me give maybe just a minute on live person and its CEO, Rob. So live person is really cloud-based platform that the largest brands in the world use to converse with their customers through messaging. You know, the same preferred medium we use with our friends and family every day. With our platform, which we call the conversational cloud, you can, let's say, change your flight, order a burrito, arrange contactless commerce services like curbside pickup, all from the convenience of iMessage or WhatsApp or Facebook or any other channel that we prefer to use today. And messaging-based transactions like these, I think, represent a modern engagement model for brands and consumers that we call conversational commerce. The company has really evolved from synchronous web chat to, you know, for customer care applications to asynchronous communications for a wide range of use cases. 
including two-way outbound notifications. So no longer do you get this email that says, do not reply. Like the, the live person ethos and, and the essence of conversational commerce is that it's always two-way. There's always a conversation. It's persistent. You know, there's AI in the background that helps to understand, you know, your intentions so we can most efficiently solve your problem. Other solutions include marketing, social, and of course, as I mentioned, uh, commerce applications. Since 2018, we've also invested really heavily in science in order to power the kinds of automations that recognize a wide range of consumer intents for every industry on day one of deployment with one of our customers. And in 2020 in particular, consumers leaned in on digital solutions for nearly, I would say, every aspect of their lives. And that meant that brick and mortar and e-commerce retailers turned increasingly to conversational commerce and conversational AI in order to capture that demand. And I think that generally speaking, going back to what I was discussing, the vision of the company is that conversational commerce will really supplant the types of commerce that we've seen historically, brick and mortar, sort of physical retail sales, e-commerce, where you're pointing and clicking on a website, the ability to converse with a brand to get questions answered increases confidence, it increases the satisfaction of the experience, and ultimately, as the results show, it drives more sales for for brands. Yeah, it's an exciting vision, but something that you saw way early on. I mean, the company's obviously grown astronomically during the pandemic and, you know, the huge push we have towards digitalization of of everything. I think I read an article recently that, you know, live person is truly the death of the phone center, especially when you've got, you know, hundreds of people piling into into work every day and that's just no longer an option. But you recognize this years in advance. And I think that perhaps the pandemic expedited some of these timelines. So how has the demands of the CFO role been you know, developed? Has it been proportionate to that speed in which the world is changing? Or it seems like you've been very prepared in general, but how has the, the rapid change of the environment been in terms of the demand on you personally and the demand on the team? Yeah, let me maybe take a step back and because I think a little additional color will help to frame some of the way I think about the demand on me. You know, the the title of the podcast, The Modern CFO, I think warrants some perspective. At least I'll provide mine on what I think kind of makes a, a CFO modern. In my view, like at a certain level of abstraction, the CFO operates at the intersection of all the company's data flows, whether it's sales, product usage, finance, people data. That's a vast sea of data. And fundamentally, the role is to transform that data into useful information, right? As we mentioned, for strategic decision-making purposes. Spreadsheets and traditional financial analysts are simply not capable of effectively utilizing the volume of data that's available in our increasingly quantified world. And from this perspective, the CFO sounds, I think, more like a job for a data scientist than a classically trained finance professional. But fortunately, for a person, I'm more or less both of these. In terms of challenges, though, and some of these are unique to the pandemic and some are, I think, just part of the evolution of the role as we seek ever more optimization and faster decision making. But the main challenges really revolve around what I think of as data constraints. And that's number one in my mind. In most large companies, internal operations run on a fragmented network of siloed spreadsheets and enterprise software where humans actually perform the equivalent of ETL jobs. That is, they, uh, they manually extract data from one system, they transform it in a spreadsheet, combining with other data, whatever the case may be, then they load it into another system. And that creates the link, the connection between systems to make workflows happen, to complete processes. 
you know, incredibly inefficient. Anytime you can have a human perform that kind of ETL function, an automated data pipeline could do it better, of course. And the result of all this is severely constrained flow of reliable data that renders even the simplest automations very hard to deploy. So in order to move faster, in order to be smarter and take on the kinds of challenges and opportunities that were presented to us by the pandemic, you have to solve these data constraints. And I think doing so allows the CFO and the broader leadership team to really focus on what matters the most. And that's making those high-level, strategic, impactful decisions for the business. And during the height of the pandemic, the most critical, I think, element of managing the business was controlling the PL in a way that allowed us to fully understand all the pieces to the equation, allowed us to confidently pull a lever, understanding what the downstream impact would be so that we could mitigate the risk of decelerating revenues unnecessarily, for example, or missing out on opportunities that were kind of unique to the macro environment, which of course we didn't miss out on. We accelerated growth quite dramatically during the year. And I think it was a function of having solved many of those data constraints in just the first six months of my being at live person and then applying the data in a way that drove decision-making during those you know, very uncertain times to the benefit of us and our customers. I was just thinking about it, there might be some also some positive externalities that trickle down from this approach, like transparency in decision-making. Is that something that you've seen as a positive outcome of being dedicated to this model of data-driven strategies? I know that it can be relatively opaque for uh, management to make decisions that either the, maybe the employees read about in the Wall Street Journal prior to understanding what, what's happening. Have you recognized transparency across the, the company as a result of this focus? It's a clear byproduct and part of, I, I would say, the core philosophy of a data scientist or a, more generally a data-driven operation. And I would say transparency in decision-making and objectivity of the decision-making process. Because when you can bring to bear hard evidence that is statistically sound, it can change the way that we might be predisposed to think about a problem or an opportunity. As humans, we have many innate biases, some of the most profound being availability bias. What have we seen most recently that worked? Well, let me just apply that same tool to this problem, which may not be the appropriate way to, or the optimal way to solve the problem. And so I think being more, quote unquote, data-driven has allowed us to make more objective, higher quality, in other words, more predictive decisions that ultimately lead to higher ROI than we would have otherwise been able to do. Uh, So I think absolutely transparency and objectivity are a key part of the sort of derivative value you get from a system like this. So let's refocus on you for a minute. So the kind of challenges that you face from the last, uh, you know, you had a, a very different job maybe a year and a half ago or two years ago is going into the pandemic as you do today. How did you manage to essentially keep everyone on the same page as systems? Perhaps you got some extreme data variances across you know, how consumers were using the brand. So how did the personal leadership skills that you have really get deployed across the team? I know you said you had a really great entrepreneurial background, I'm sure that led into the leadership capacity to be able to lead a team during uncertain times. So kind of what did you fall back on? What characteristics and qualities that did you use to lead 
Obviously, transparency is a great byproduct of strategy, but there's also a very human level to being in a leadership position like the CFO. So I'd love to hear more on that. Indeed. I led fairly large teams very early in my career at the NYC. As an entrepreneur, I built, built a company that had nearly 50 employees. And there are many elements to great leadership. But I think to be specific to the question and the context you know, during the pandemic, I think that empathy is a clear trait that is needed in times of you know, emotional stress. And certainly, many people in the world were experiencing uncertainty and, and emotional stress. And so I think that putting yourself in the shoes of your employees and empathizing with them in a genuine way to find solutions to their problems, not just the company's problems, is essential for any leader to come through a unique challenge like the one we experienced in 2020, not just unscathed, but stronger, you know, on the exit. So I think that that's really essential. Beyond that, I mean, I've always been a strong proponent of ownership. And I don't mean that in the way I just delegate everything. I mean, people should feel excited about what they do. And in most cases, you're excited about your work if you have a lot of control and you can kind of steer the ship to an extent and take pride in what ultimately results from your decision-making. And if you're just having people execute on decisions that have already been made, I think that's a work mode that can be useful in some contexts, but from a leadership position, I think it's a little bit suboptimal. And you know, you end up with people who are just working nine to five, right? They're just collecting a paycheck. Whereas if they're bought in, if they're part of devising the solution and they're steering the ship, then I think they wake up in the morning thinking about that problem and they're highly motivated to come in and you know be there be creative and be their best. And so I think that's another essential element that I bring to the table as a leader and the way that I think about, you know, encouraging people to, to be their best. Absolutely. I mean, it definitely takes a certain type of leadership skill to be able to detach. We have to write the ship and have a certain level of stature and maybe even stoicism to be able to relay confidently that team is going to be moving forward in this direction. Everyone is going to have maybe a slightly different role in doing so, but we understand where you are and we want to inspire you to be able to wake up in the morning excited at the, you know, whether it's in our offices or, so I think that's a really admirable methodology of handling all of the pandemic. One of the things that, you know, maybe we could talk more about would be kind of the concept of ethical AI. So, I know that conversational AI and dealing with brands, they may be, you know, very quick conversations relating to a direct question and answer. But I know that there's a lot of research and study being done about biases that are embedded into into artificial intelligence and machine learning programs. Uh, Does that play a role in life person's thought processes or does that play any sort of way into the way you're looking into rolling out more in, in the new year? It certainly does. And LivePerson has helped to found an organization called Equal AI, whose sole mission is to eliminate bias in algorithms. And the classic scenario here is where, let's say, biased legacy practices have collected data that's now being used by algorithms to automate or augment those practices. And of course, models that are trained on a biased repository of data will themselves learn 
a biased sort of solution, a biased approach to problem solving. And this can manifest in pretty profound ways. A popular example that's in the media a lot or was in the media a lot recently is policing practices. If those legacy practices were originally racially biased, the algorithm's recommendations will likely reinforce that bias because of the data that has been collected that is their lifeblood. That's how they learn. And they can't go outside of that. And so they would naturally reinforce those biases, causing recommended actions that might reflect the legacy practices. So I think there's a abstracting up from that. There's just a broader need to question the way that we're building and training these algorithms, especially considering the extent to which they permeate our everyday lives and the extent to which all virtually all digital brands today are leveraging some form of machine learning to bring value to the consumer. So, so I think it's, it's incredibly important. I would say also, though, we've launched a new brand. We call it Bella. You may have seen some of the, the buzz on social media. It's a bit of a test and learn scenario right now for live person, but it's essentially a bank that literally loves its customers. Bella offers its members a beautiful conversational experience that covers all of your traditional banking needs, but there's a lot more to it. For example, customers are randomly rewarded with up to 200% cash back just for using their Bella cards. And random acts of kindness are also a staple of the experience. For example, if you buy a coffee or, or your lunch, Bella may pick up the tab for you without any prior notice. And that tab's not necessarily picked up by the bank itself. It's picked up by other customers of the bank, which is really profound. We have this account called a Karma account, and you can throw a few bucks in it. The algorithms on the back end will bring together pools of Karma money, if you will, and randomly reward people, less of a reward and more of just a, a surprise act of kindness with picking up a tab, whether it's getting gas at the gas station or lunch or coffee. And I think that this makes people feel really great. It's really unique in the world. I think of the bank as kind of an amalgamation of love and algorithms, if you will. And the focus on love and inclusion is, I believe, highly impactful given the heated political rhetoric in recent years and the social division, especially in 2020. More generally, though, I think that Bella and Equal AI embody an ethos and a value set that we're weaving into conversational AI in our core platform, which, of course, given the extent to which our platform is used by the largest brands in the world, should have a very positive impact on people everywhere, which I'm very excited to be, to be a part of. I would also weave in that there's an element of this in our new remote asynchronous work mode. Like many, during the pandemic, we shifted to remote and asynchronous work. And like many, we found a lot of value in that work mode and decided to offer it to our employees indefinitely. And we think of it not so much as work from anywhere, but be from anywhere. And the reason for the, the change in the phrase there is that people can obviously physically be from anywhere, but also culturally, socially, they can be from anywhere, which again, it ties into this whole concept of equal AI, of love and algorithms and, and, and changing the world for, for, for the better uh, through technology. Well, when you said literally loves you, I did pause for a second and think, <laughs> I don't think John's one to confuse figuratively and literally, but that's a it's an exceptional I'm really excited to explore Bella more personally on my own and, and share with my, my peers and, and colleagues that great mission. It's really exciting to see that, that intersection. I, I can't think of a better time 
you know, across the world to be considering personal karma and our karma accounts. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, I'd love to kind of do a few more broad end questions, kind of see how you're thinking about 2021 and maybe if you had unlimited resources and all the time in the world, some of the biggest operational challenges that, that you would solve, you know, maybe in, in 2021 and then maybe broaden out the next, you know, three to five years, what's really getting you excited I know that you said you want everyone to come to work excited every single day. I think that's a great mission. What is really getting you amped up right now in regards to live person or its growth or a new route like Bella? I think this new path that we're on that, you know, Bella embodies is super exciting and there'll be more to come along those lines. A little bit of a different angle here. I think in the near term, making the investments internally and externally through M&A that will extend our leadership position in conversational AI, especially for commerce applications, uh, is an area of intense interest. If there's one, I think, business lesson from the pandemic, and there are many, but if there's one that I would choose to speak on, it's that you know the pandemic was really a catalyst for digital transformation. And consider, for example, uh, Amazon. After decades of Amazon and other e-commerce offerings, the digital market share of aggregate retail sales at the end of 2019, just before the pandemic, was still in the low double digits. After mere months, right, that, that more than doubled or approximately doubled, depending on, on which source you consult. This is not a transient effect, right? This is not something that will revert to the historical mean. I think that the infrastructure and the digital offerings from companies like LivePerson that were rapidly developed or adapted to meet this surging digital demand have structurally shifted the way that consumers expect to engage with the world. And I think we just talked about the way that work has changed. You know, many companies and individual leaders would never have considered fully remote asynchronous work modes as desirable or potentially even feasible, given the longstanding, I think, influence of the original factory model, where essentially if you're not present, if you're not seen doing work, you're probably not doing it. So there was obviously kind of a forcing function for this digital transformation. And I think that has a lot of implications for our future strategy. As I said a few moments ago, being thoughtful about where we're deploying capital and why, ensuring that it aligns with the digital direction that the world is moving in is really key. This year, in the next couple of months, for the year, and I would say for the years to come, that's a key lens through which we're looking at deploying capital and, and making decisions at, at the leadership level. I think, again, going to, to LivePerson's platform, the conversational AI that enabled brick and mortar retailers to rapidly adapt to kind of a digital only selling mode, not only maintained steady revenue streams for them during this time, but it, it materially accelerated those revenue streams in many cases. And considering that many of the customer interactions in these selling situations were automated you know, through conversational AI, the shift is, again, not transient, but structural. Once you have built a machine right, to solve a problem, you'll never put that problem back in the hands of less efficient, more expensive human labor. And so all, all of this, in my mind, comes together in a way that spells out an investment strategy and a product development roadmap and a go-to-market strategy that's very cohesive and aligned. That's how we're currently thinking about making decisions this year and informing our path to growth in the coming years. 
For internal operations, I have a little bit of a, it's related, but a slightly different take on what I believe will evolve over time. And that is going back to the top of the hour, there's a need to leverage more data to stay competitive, to lean in on what I call data advantages, which are distinct from leading with engineering or or leading with business relationships. Data advantages, I think, are some of the most powerful forces you can bring to bear to solve business problems and unlock new opportunities. And I think that one of the greatest examples that, that always comes to mind for me is Alibaba and Ant Financial, right? They had built this incredible shopping sort of platform and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of businesses on board there. And what they realized though, was that there's so much more they could do because of all the data they collected through that platform. That enabled them to, for example, provide loans to small businesses in the range of, let's say, $1,000. Whereas previously, the only loans that were available in China were approximately the equivalent of about a million. And the reason they were able to achieve this was they had all the data on the businesses, how much business they were doing, how stable their cash flows were, et cetera. So they could create novel, you know, highly innovative credit scoring methodologies to, to give them the confidence to extend their business into financial services, into insurance. Now they're in healthcare. And the reason they're able to achieve that is really a function of data advantages. And if I think about what we've done already at LivePerson, and, and specifically, I'll focus under, under me, I've created a team that I call DMD, Data Models and Decisions, where I've hired a large team of scientists and engineers instead of the typical financial analysts and business analysts that are often found in the back office. And the central idea behind DMD is that, like my example with, with Alibaba, leveraging data appropriately can create flywheel effects. And let me kind of walk you through a flywheel. Imagine data is an input for models, and the models may be simple and rules-based, or they may be really sophisticated machine learning. Those models will manipulate and organize that data in a way that transforms it into useful information. If the purpose of that information is well understood, it could flow to automations that handle kind of routine transactional activities, you know, manual workflows, et cetera. If it's not well understood, it may serve to reduce uncertainty for strategic decision-making purposes. And you can see how this would allow Alibaba, for example, to reduce uncertainty in order to make the decision to enter financial services or, or, or healthcare. And ultimately, those reducing uncertainty for those decisions result in decisions and those decisions outcomes that produce more data, that data flows into the system, and all the models, they get a broader view of the world. And so ultimately, if I take a step back, what I'm intensely focused on for internal operations is creating what I like to think of as an AI operating model. End to end for the company, we have data for every user, every system, every event. All the data is fully connected through a data lake architecture. All the systems talk to each other. We then have the foundation to what I like to think of as software every process. So every conceivable process that can be automated will be automated when you've laid that foundation. And then when you have all of that humming, there's a profound opportunity for machines to step in and really you know, leveraging that flywheel effect I just described, really accelerate the pace at which we can extract useful insights for taking the business in directions that we might not have ever thought of had we not built this machine, this sort of AI operating model from, from end to end. 
So I'm intensely excited about that mission. That that's one that the whole company is behind, and one that's already transformed the way that that live person thinks about its strategic roadmap. That's incredible. I mean, I'm excited now as well. I, that's a great optimism to have as a, as a vision moving forward, especially going into you know maybe another 12 choice year. But I think that the capitalizing on this trend is something that a live person is going to be very, very successful at. So it's going to be really exciting to see. I think we've gotten a really great view of your day-to-day as well as, you know, the way you're thinking in a broader scale. It might be fun just, uh, you know, maybe take a step back and talk about maybe uh, new habits and, you know, priorities that you've, you know, managed to structure your day during uh, during the pandemic. Any any great readings or, you know, workouts or cooking from homes that everyone should know about that uh, has helped out in the uh, and keeping you active and you know, mentally sharp during all this time? Yeah, so I used to be a bit of a gym junkie. I tried to go physically to the gym, you know, four, four or five times a, a week. And now, obviously, I, I don't really leave the house. I've developed a routine where almost regardless of what's on the agenda for the day, I'll commit some time first thing in the morning to myself for, for mental well-being and physical well-being I've had to buy right some some equipment that I have stashed over here in the office. But I, I found that having easy access to it, being like just to the right of me here as we speak, enables me to commit, you know, in a more, I think, effective way than I would if if it were the gym or somewhere else in the home. And committing to that 30 minutes to an hour of of sort of you know mental and physical well-being, personal space, especially in, in times like these has been incredibly valuable for me. I've seen, I'm a whoop, you know, uh, devotee. And so I, I've seen the results actually from this, this routine that I put in place for myself. I was also, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, 100% reliant on ordering food. It was mostly sweet green, but it, you know, no matter what, I was placing an order on my phone and picking up food from some restaurant. I recently moved and I found that my go-to restaurants had very unreliable delivery to my new location, forced me to kind of go to the kitchen and figure it out myself. And I found that not only is it more economical, but it tastes a lot better if you just commit to making your own food. And I've been very successful and become very efficient at doing that. I can step out of a meeting and within 30 minutes have made my meal and eaten it before you know moving into the next one. Whereas oftentimes, you know, the unreliable delivery would arrive kind of mid-meeting and it'd be cold by the time you had a chance to, to go at it. So committing to making my own meals has been both enjoyable. It's a kind of a release from the, you know, never-ending Zoom calls. They end and start in the same minute and they cover the entire day or nearly the entire day. And so just getting up and, and stepping away from the computer and the day-to-day and, and doing something with your hands is pretty therapeutic, I found. There is something purely enjoyable about having a short task in which there is a beginning, middle, defined end, and it's enjoyed as <laughs> scaling a, a company when it seems goals are month by month. And I completely understand that. That's a. That's and I would add, I would add that um, it's that physical component that's rewarding in some you know deep human level. And then also, while I'm certainly comfortable and even seeking of uncertainty in many respects, doing a task where it's fully certain from end to end is, you know, adds to the therapy component, I believe. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much for spending time with me today. 
I know that everyone who's listening is going to have a great deal to dissect, probably a great podcast to listen to more than once from all of the great insights that you've had from really defining what a modern CFO is. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Andrew.